trail and ultra runners what is going on what's happening welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i am your humble host coach jason coop and this episode of the podcast is all about how we identify as athletes and how that identity can impact disordered eating and eating disorders. Now, before we start in with the main part of this podcast, I do want to make something abundantly clear. I'm not a specialist in this area, nor will I ever pretend to be. And it's with that sensitivity that whenever I want to discuss a topic such as eating disorders, I want to bring in the real experts into the room with me. You longtime listeners of the podcast will remember two separate podcasts I did with the fabulous Dr. Kate Bennett on this subject. And this podcast is an excellent extension of those conversations. So on the podcast today, we have Maddie Palermo. Maddie is a fifth year doctoral candidate in clinical psychology at the University of South Florida, where she is studying disordered eating behaviors and their connection to identity among athletes. I got to know Maddie's research and the work that the University of South Florida is doing as I was drafting some of the content of my book and in background research I had done with the podcast with Dr. Kate Bennett. I find Maddie's work absolutely fascinating and relevant to this ultra marathon audience. I don't need to tell y'all that ultra runners are a high identity group. We identify with our sports so much so that almost all of our friends, our entire peer group, and even the social bonds tend to highly revolve around our activities and training as ultra marathon runners. So it's with this social and behavioral context as a backdrop that I wanted to explore the connection between athletic and exercise identity a bit further and Maddie's research neatly folds into this narrative. With that as a backdrop, open your ears and open your minds and I'm gonna get right out of the way. Get ready for this conversation with Maddie Palermo all about identity and eating disorders. So, you know, it's kind of, kind of interesting related to that is, is I've been familiar with your work for a few years. And then when I actually wanted to bring you on the show, it was surprising to me that you hadn't finished your doctorate yet. And I, I don't know whether that's just a representation of like, like your work and when it's been published or, or what. How, so how can you explain that to me? Because when we had the correspondence, I was like, yes. oh my gosh, like not that it's bad or anything like that, but it really surprised me because I've run across your work a couple of times before. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear that my work is, is kind of reaching the right people. Um, so I am doing a clinical psychology PhD, which is typically four or five years of grad school in the traditional sense of classes. And you do research during that time. And you also do some clinical training. So I see clients and provide therapy as part of that. Um, and I'm in my fifth year now. So I'm rounding out that that cycle And then um, in order to earn your degree, you have to do a one-year clinical internship. So very similar to how med students match for residency, we all match for our one-year internship. And that's like a a 40-hour-a-week where you're providing therapy services um, as part of your internship. So that's where I'm going next. Um, July 1st is my start date, and I'm doing my internship at... um, University of California, San Diego. Oh, other so, side of the other side of the or other, other side, side of the, of the US. Country. Wow. Oh. Yes. So and and most people move for internship. That's just yeah. part of kind of the process. So once I complete that year, 
I finally earned the PhD. Um, but, you know, I think a really important part of, of earning the PhD is you're actively doing your research the entire five years and you really come out ready to be an independent researcher and start your career. Yeah, it's very thorough. I mean, once again, I've been oh, yes. kind of familiar with the work that you've done and the work that your lab has done for, for a while. But for the, the almost all the listenership is not going to be familiar with that. So explain to the listeners what the depth lab at uh, the University of South Florida actually does and who's involved and what kind of research are you are, are you guys working on? Absolutely. So the depth lab stands for disordered eating prevention, treatment and health. And it's run by Dr. Diana Rancourt, who uh, also studies eating disorders, disordered eating, and maladaptive exercise. So I am one of her five grad students, and we all kind of work within our different niches within the lab. So I really focus on identity and disordered eating and exercise behaviors. Um, one of my fellow lab mates He's really invested in sort of males and disordered eating and even exercise behaviors within that realm. Um, another one of my lab mates really does look at things um, like weight stigma and how that affects disordered eating behaviors. So we kind of all do our own little things under the same umbrella of trying to work towards understanding, preventing and treating disordered eating and exercise behaviors. And the the exercise behaviors piece, it's not like unique or novel, but it's something that you're like kind of like deliberately incorporating into this mix of how you guys are studying this this complex mental health issue, right? So yeah. why, why is that a specific focus of what you guys are doing? So that's really important to me, actually. So for a really long time, exercise was just kind of thought of as you know, a component of an eating disorder. So someone might exercise to burn off food or exercise in order to um, eat. And that was really thought of as almost like a uh, sort of behavior that goes along with having an eating disorder. And my whole thought process behind it is I think that someone can have disordered exercise and this maladaptive relationship with exercise without some of the other eating disordered behaviors. So maybe you're not binging, purging, or restricting, but it's really only this sort of exercise component that you're doing. And we often don't really look at that as its own independent maladaptive health behavior. So kind of taking a focus away from having that traditional eating disorder outlook and focusing more on, okay, are you having this maladaptive relationship with exercise that maybe you don't fit the classic eating disorder mold and looking at it that way? Well, and here's the thing. Here's why this research is kind of like so fascinating and also kind of almost befuddling, to be honest with you, in the endurance world and in particularly in the world that I am, which is the ultra endurance world, is that the exercise behaviors are extreme by default. Right. Yes. And it's very hard to to unentangle extreme exercise behaviors with just normal, like kind of like normal day to day training, because the clinical definitions of what many of you and your colleagues kind of like see uh, either in practice or in research, those might be abnormal or atypical behaviors in a in your average population, your average populations of students, which is a lot of what uh, of what you all study. But mm -hmm. they're more indicative or they're more normalized 
in the in in the cohort of ultramarathon yes. athletes as is the parallel to that is is as is their eating behaviors right and so it becomes yes. this really kind of like messy ball of wax to try to to try to try to unentangle especially for me as a coach when I'm when I'm working with athletes to try to pick up on some of the some of the the cues and the identifiers for when I need to bring in like external assistance from people like you or people like my my colleague Kate Bennett who I've uh, had on the on the podcast before. So I'm hoping this podcast can kind of enlighten us to 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 all to try to unentangle you know some of the stuff that I know that a lot of people are are are, are kind of kind of kind of confused by. So one of the things that you just mentioned is one of the areas of focus that you have is on athletic and exercise identity and trying to create a little bit of a separation between those two and how that actually affects disordered eating or eating disorders before we get into it too much because the topic is going to be you know the topic is going to be really novel for a lot of the listeners what are what are those two things very specifically and how can we view them from a, more of a practical standpoint absolutely and so i think when you're thinking of an eating disorder that's something that meets clinical diagnostic criteria. You're hitting all the boxes of someone who has, you know, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa. It's, it's really a clinical diagnosis that someone is given. And disordered eating behaviors, I think, is almost like a step back from that. So it's not so much that you're hitting clinical criteria for these things, but they might still be a little bit um, abnormal or they could still interfere with day-to-day -day functioning. Maybe you're not doing it enough to where it reaches that clinical threshold, things of that nature. So it's it's a little nuanced um, behind it, but it's more of thinking of clinical diagnostic or maybe just a little bit less severe than that. Um, and one thing I also wanna to clarify too is when I talk about compulsive exercise, because that is can be very nuanced as well. I really try to stay away from thinking about exercise frequency as something that tells me if it's adaptive or maladaptive. Because I think someone who trains for marathons or ultra marathons, you're probably running a lot. And if you come into the clinical room and you're like, yeah, I run 18 miles a day or whatever. And if someone's only going on frequency, yeah. that might raise a flag. But what I really more like to think of it is your thoughts and feelings behind your exercise behavior. So is there flexibility there? Can you take a rest day when you're feeling unwell or um, when you're injured? How do you feel about taking a rest day or your thoughts and feelings about food consumption and exercise? So I think it's I try to really take a nuanced approach to that instead of just looking at it from a clear Oh, you're exercising a lot. This must be bad. Yeah, it can't be. Uh, it can't be. It can't be volume dependent, right? Because no. you know, when you're getting into like 20 or 30 hours a week of training, like a lot of ultramarathon athletes do, and a lot of Ironman athletes do, and I'm thinking about it, it kind of throws those norms. It throws a lot of those norms out of the window. So I want to get back to this identity piece, right? This identity yeah, between yeah. an athlete versus your kind of like exercise identity, and the the point of view that I'm coming from is is a lot of people find ultra running as a byproduct of an extension of a sport that they used to do either running or team sports in college and things like that. And they end up finding like their tribe, right? Their community. Mm -hmm. And that's a big, that's a, a big part of the trail running culture. So to speak it is, it is a very kind of like tight knit, 
you know, tight night tight knit community. And I always like to say it's the same group of idiots. We just go to different locations. <laughs> Yeah. And it really is. I mean, you get, you know, you're in the sport for a few years and you kind of know everybody uh, at, the, at that point. But in some, in some cases, I've always viewed that as a potential negative, right? We're over identifying mm -hmm. with the sport that we are participating in. And so I want, I want, this is your area of expertise. How would you view that? I mean, how, how first off, how are we separating an exercise identity versus an athletic identity? And when does that actually become potentially problematic? Yes. And you know, I think this is something in my research career that really I was trying to tease apart as well. Um, so at first, you know, I was really interested in working with athletes and this idea of athletic identity and how it is measured in the classic literature, which, you know, the scale we use to measure athletic identity is has items on it. That's like, I see myself as an athlete. I have many goals related to my sport things of that nature. So it's very sport focused. Um, I spend more time thinking about my sport than anything else. And it's really how much, you know, and it can go from like, let's say zero to 10, um, 10 being athletic identity is this the most important thing in your life. Um, and what I found is sometimes that classification fits athletes but sometimes it doesn't necessarily always fit everyone because it's really focused on sport. And it depends how people think about their sport involvement. Um, you know, some people who, you know, uh, I've spoken to who do more of a CrossFit, they're like, well, you know, I don't know if it's my sport necessarily, but it's really my passion and it's something I, I love. And that kind of brought me to the idea of exercise identity which is asks more things like um, being an exerciser is more than just exercising to me. I would feel a real loss if I couldn't exercise anymore. And I think a person can have both. I think a person can have both athletic and exercise identity. Um, and I think it's really individual to what resonates more with the person. However, having too much of either one is where it gets to more of a problem. So if this is like the only thing in your life, exercise or athletic identity, and there's not much flexibility around it, then we start to see some problematic behaviors emerge occasionally from this. And the paper that we're referring to, or, the, or most of the content that you were just referring to, kind yes. of relates back to a paper that you wrote. This is a 2001 paper in... Uh, Eating Weight Disorders. Is that the name of the paper? So I just got the abbreviation. Yeah, Eating and Weight Disorders yeah. is the journal. And, and then it's called Understanding Athletic and Exercise Identity in Relation to Disordered Eating Behaviors. And uh, can, so can you try to try, can you try to expand upon when it becomes too problematic? And because I know the listeners are trying to like, well, you know, identify as an athlete, but and I did and I identify and I like to, you know, I like to run and these are my people as I, as I spoke about earlier. But is there is there a, a threshold or even behavioral cues that you can mm -hmm. focus in on that you as a clinician, when somebody kind of like comes into you and is consulting with you, that you would say, yeah, we need to reframe the way that you view yourself as an athlete or as somebody who exercises or as somebody who participates in the sport? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think what it really comes down to is how this identity is showing up in your life. So for instance, if you have this really high athletic identity, but 
it's not causing you interpersonal difficulties. You're not having a difficult relationship with exercise. You're not engaging in disordered eating behaviors. Maybe this athletic identity at its height it is okay for you. I think where it comes into play is sometimes when this identity becomes very strong, then individuals engage in maladaptive behaviors to reinforce this identity. So when you're thinking about an athlete, and I've seen this, you know, just anecdotally in my own clinical work, thinking about athletes and that identity is so strong and they want to succeed so well that they're willing to then they think it makes sense to reduce food intake to increase performance or lose weight to increase performance because I want to strive and succeed as an athlete. And that's actually going to be more harmful in the long run to, to your athletic performance and, and to yourself mentally. And so I think that that's where the question really leads to, is this um, something that can be maladaptive? But what's really interesting about this paper that we're speaking about is Athletic identity was not really associated with many disordered eating behaviors or maladaptive exercise. It was that exercise identity yeah. that was more strongly associated with these things, um, which is which is interesting in and of itself, because I think a lot of people often think of athletes as this really at risk population. And maybe for a lot of individuals, that's not the case. So it's not the worst thing in the world to highly identify with the sport that you're doing or highly identify as an athlete within that particular sport. From an eating disorder standpoint, it doesn't appear to be as as problematic as as maybe previously hypothesized. Oh, that's, I, once again, that's why I found that interesting, right? Because we've heard yeah. that for we've heard that for years that this mm -hmm. very strong identity towards whatever sport that you were doing whether it was running or gymnastics or, you know, archery or wrestling or kind of whatever, like if you were like really, like really into it for whatever reason, that behavioral, uh, those behavioral qualities that really drew you into the sport where you had high identification within that one sport group also led to these, these, you know, disordered eating behaviors and kind of finds out or it turns out to be that link isn't quite as uh, strong as we initially thought. Yeah, I know. It was surprising to me as well. And that really kind of changed my focus to, okay, maybe it's not athletes. Maybe it's not this athletic component. Maybe there's something with exercise. And uh, so, yeah, I was, when I wrote this paper, we totally were thinking, oh yeah, athletic identity, definitely going to give us some disordered eating and was not the case. Huh. Okay. So there's going to be some people uh, that are listening to this podcast that are going to go to these, this, this paper that I mentioned, and I'm going to link it up in the show notes. And one mm -hmm. of the common themes that, that kind of resonates throughout a lot of you and your colleagues works is you guys are doing it on college people, which is not indifferent from the sports science literature. That's the world that I am. I'm in, right. We're in actually science, yeah. sports science, and it's all college dudes. Like, let's just like face it. Like most of the sports science literature out there, they're a good population to bring into the lab and to poke and prod, and you can do it for relatively free. And there's a lot of them out there. And in and, and the literature that, 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 that you're producing has a similar tone where it's a lot of college yes. age athletes. And so people out there will want to know, well, is this translatable post-college when they're in normal life, when they're outside of the dorm, they're outside of the campus, they're grown, they've got kids and a job and a 401k and all this stuff. Like it, how, what things might be, may or may not be translatable from what you guys are studying in that specific population group? Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's one thing with psych as a literature, we've 
we love our college students. Um, and I think although we haven't had any data to support this yet, there probably are some levels of transition. I think if you're thinking about someone who's no longer a college student and is more of, you know, adult functioning day to day, it may be that athletic identity doesn't have as much space or time, or it could be that athletic identity becomes one thing that someone really focuses on because there's not other distractions of college, classes, et cetera. So I do think in some ways this could transition out and thinking of, okay, well, what does this look like? If someone's really experiencing high athletic identity or high exercise identity, again, is this identity driving these maladaptive behaviors? And if so, maybe that's something to look inwards and question and, and wonder about your own experience with those identities. I do think that identity does go past the college student level um, and is probably in some ways can be more important to someone post-college. Yeah. I mean, I, I find both ends of the spectrum, right? Where I work yeah. with athletes that are immediately post-college and they're still a runner and, you know, being becoming a trail runner and ultra run, a runner is kind of an extension of that identity that they formed in college. Mm -hmm. And then also find, you know, adult athletes later on in life that had no previous sport background that have now found some identity that they really connect with through kind of through that particular sport. And so your yeah. idea of like this, like transitioning layers, I think kind of like really holds true because people are coming at it from different parts of the continuum. Yeah. And I do think that links up to another paper I wrote in a way. Um, it's still among college students, but it was looking at athletic identity, self-reported athletic identity. So how much someone identifies and their self-reported level of competition. Yeah. And what we found was in individuals with high athletic identity, but were engaging in low levels of competition, that they were engaging in more disordered eating behaviors. Uh, wait a minute. You know, say, was, say that, say that again, because I want that yes. to kind of like resonate <laughs> because everybody think, wait a minute, high, this low, this leads to yes. that. Like say that again, because I think that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Yes. So someone who has high athletic identity, so your athletic identity is really salient and important, but participating at low level of competition. So let's say rank your competition level on a scale of one to 10, someone on that lower side of engaging in competition level, that individual is engaging in more disordered eating behaviors. That's so interesting. Yeah. And you, you, you kind of, um, uh, you, 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 you can speculate a little bit on why that actually is from a clinician's mm -hmm. point of view. Why? Yeah. I mean, you think it's, I think it's all about that identity not being fulfilled. Yeah. So if it's so important to you, you know, athletics and, and engaging in athletic activities, and then you're kind of like, let's say you came from, so again, this was among college students. So let's say you came from being a high school varsity athlete, and now you're playing like intramural level. That's a huge shift. Yeah. You know, maybe you weren't weren't going to play in college, but that's still a huge shift in, in expectations and, um, you know, sport level that you're you're really engaging in. And that could be really unfulfilling. So you're so used to something else. Well, it's important because it's not the other way around, too. Right. People with it, low, no. low athletic, like low athletic identity that are competing at a high, a high level or yeah. think that they have a high level of competition don't have those same behaviors. No. Nope. And it's all mm -hmm. about the fulfillment gap or what I'm calling yeah. the fulfillment gap. 
I, that feels accurate to me. Yeah. Wow. So like, so freaking interesting. So, um, one of the things that, uh, uh, that I wanted to get your opinion on is ultra marathon has this kind of like rich history of trying to manipulate eating behaviors in an ergogenic way. Right. So we have all of these different, uh, types of nutrition tools at our disposal. We can manipulate macronutrient intake. We can manipulate the total energy intake and it's all done mainly at the elite level, but it also kind of like trickles down into the recreational level to try to improve performance. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get your take on this as a clinician, cause I'm, I'm kind of like fascinated by it because some people will take the position or take the argument that doing that is a slippery slope, right? You're kind of mm-hmm. like, you have a, you have a kind of a primed population, right? For yeah. eating disorders and disordered eating. And now you're throwing in and in like an intentional, you know, carrot to them, no pun intended to, 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 fu- to kind of fuel that behavior. And so knowing what you know about the behavioral side, as well as the predisposition side, which is what we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, how these, how these behaviors kind of predisposition people, what do you, what do you have to say about incorporating some of these strategies intentionally as like a ergogenic aid of sorts? You know, I think it would, to me, I'd really want to be mindful of how the client or the individual was talking about flexibility of these behaviors. So for example, you got a race coming up in a month and maybe you're going to do some uh, different eating patterns or try different things to improve performance for that month. And then you're going to go back to eating normally. And, or, you know, even within that month, you've got a couple of days where you're, you know, you're having different meals that might not follow that exact diet. And it's not, it's not the end of the world. It's not something that is, is so distressing. And I think that's where I really come at it from a clinical perspective. Is there distress created by this diet? Is there rigidity created by this diet? And how long does that last? Because I think if something is, is, a temporary option to improve performance and there's flexibility and ability to kind of go back, then it might not raise as much of a red flag when I'm thinking of a clinical perspective as someone who's adopting this and is going to these extreme lengths for a long period of time. You know, it's interesting. So I'm going to link this up in the show notes to my previous uh, discussion uh, with, with Kate who that I mentioned earlier, that's basically the exact same thing that she tuned in that she always tunes into. She says she, she'll always tell me whenever, whenever I'm helping, whenever she's kind of like helping me navigate these things or whenever I'm kind of like asking her counsel on stuff that the lack of flexibility or rigidity in the whatever strategy that you're actually trying, whatever nutritional strategy that you're actually trying, that's the kind of the, the kind of the linchpin in everything. Mm -hmm. If you, if the client or the athlete can demonstrate flexibility, once the competition is over, I'm going to go, I'm going to change my pattern up. No problem. No problem. Right. Because they're using it as a tool for a specific Mm -hmm. and for specific end goal. When that Mm -hmm. flexibility is not there, the rigidity is there, the competition's there and the behavior continues those are when the kind of the alarm bells start to sound. Totally. It's exactly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not surprised. I think a lot of us come from that same perspective of, okay, is there flexibility? Is there room for movement? Um, and trying to identify 
the problematic behaviors. Because there's a lot of here. Here's also where I come out of. There's a lot of peanut gallery stuff going on too, which I I personally detest. You know, because you never really know what's going on with the individual. But mm-hmm. I do think that people are genuinely trying to be help, like helpful, like just people out in the community that are concerned with people's, you know, health and welfare that are not on the clinical side, such as, you know, mm-hmm. yourself and some of my other colleagues, they're just genuinely trying to be helpful. But a lot of times they don't have like, a, a, on almost all cases, they don't have kind of have the toolkit, right, to actually yeah. provide like advice and counsel and to have the right, you know, filter put on put on things so that they can actually do the right thing. So yeah. a lot of the, you know, kind of a lot of the, like the peanut gallery, it's not due to them. It's just due to them being kind of like unequipped, I guess is what what I'm saying. They want to yeah. help. And I want to try to bring tools into for people to where they can actually, where they actually can help. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of people might think, hey, this really was effective for me. This could be effective for someone else. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of everybody needs different fueling and nutrition. And uh, although that's not what I'm an expert in, I still think it's really important that everyone looks genetically different. And, you know, you might need something that someone else might not. So what would you say to uh, what would you say to a runner? Um that is kind of like coming into the sport that has just a really high uh, identification with um, their particular type of exercise, right? They really crave it. They want to do it all the time. And they somehow, and it's somehow, and they start to start to display behaviors that are, um, uh, that that are just not conducive to them kind of like living off full life and think of their like yeah they're like um they don't see their friends and family as much because they're training they kind of like forego their responsibilities home at home because they are you know too like engaged in their training like how do you start to mm-hmm. counsel that how do you start to counsel those athletes initially yeah you know i think initially we talk about what it would look like to take a rest day or a lot of individuals with these um, sort of behaviors are exercising two, three times a day even. And it's like, what, what would it look like to skip one of those? How how would that feel? So just a little um, bit, like not a lot, a little just a bit, little bit. Right, you know, and I think, I think that that is so important is um, you don't just want to rip it away mm. because that is, you know, an athlete is who they are. Running is a running or whatever sport you're engaging in. That's an important part of, of your life. And so ripping all of it away at once can be very distressing. And I don't want to have you never run again. That's not something that would be joyful for anyone. It's more of a, how can we build this relationship with running or whatever the sport may be that that is allowing you to live this life? So instead of taking three daily runs, could could you take two on a Wednesday, how would that look for you? And then slowly try to get it back to a more manageable space. And I think that that looks different for everyone because I know I, I ran a marathon several years ago now, and I know that I was running a lot to be successful. So, you know, backing it off to being like, Hey, don't do your long run. That might not be effective in that moment. It's all about trying to rebalance and restructure around it. It's almost like a progressive overload approach, just like we would use with an athlete. You know, if you're lifting 20 pounds today, you know, tomorrow, let's try 
22 pounds, right? If you're exactly. if you're running 30 miles a week, let's try 35 miles a week, right? I mean, you're kind of yeah. taking that same approach. It's a more of a deloading approach, but it's not yes. taking everything away at once, which I'm calling overload. It's just taking yeah. the manageable pieces away at once. Yeah. And I think too, a lot of people listening might think, oh yeah, I could skip my you know, whatever, my Saturday run to go to a birthday party, no problem. And there's other people that might be listening and thinking, I, I could not do that. So I think it's, it, you know, it's easy, it, it's easier said than done for many individuals who should, who struggle with this. Yeah. I often, so when I'm, when I'm working with athletes that have a hard time, like letting go of something very specific, I have them put that in context of the big picture to see mm-hmm. if it will make sense to them okay, this one workout or this one thing is 10 kilometers. 10 kilometers is probably one-tenth of the entirety of training that you're doing. Yeah. If that is still a big deal to you, we need to work on other things because it's not, right? Let's just hashtag math the situation out, right? Like from a training perspective, if your goal is to, you know, get better in your sport and all that other thing, that is not a material aspect of it, yet you are blowing the the you're blowing out of proportion the meaning of this very small fraction of yes. the entirety of training and and what is the meaning behind that is it is it yeah. that because i didn't do this one training component i can't eat lunch is it because i didn't do this one training component that i won't be good at my sport like what you know what is it behind it is missing things occasionally or skipping sh- should be okay, you know? Yeah. hundred so, percent. Okay. So, yeah. um, I, I mentioned earlier kind of the peanut gallery and I want to give the opportunity for, for like you, cause you are in the field, right? You know, mm-hmm. where all the tools are and there are people in the ultra marathon world that are, that absolutely need to see somebody like yourself or my colleague, Kate, or, you know, whoever, where, how do you get people into those resources? Like, what can you tell a friend who know who their training partner, somebody on their team, somebody in their running club or whatever, they, they want to yeah. like get them some counsel in that area. How would you counsel those people to approach that with their friends and training partners? Yeah. I mean, I think we're really in a public mental health crisis to a certain extent. It is very hard to find a therapist yeah. <laughs> right now in mm-hmm. a general sense. Um, I think if you want someone who is going to feel like they can understand what you're going through. Um, a lot of the times there's the Academy for Eating Disorders and we have eating disorder clinicians, like a um, director of eating disorder clinicians. And some of those individuals will say, I work with athletes. Um, there's also nutritionists through that, that you can so you can find sort of more tailored individuals to your needs. Um, I think in general, when you're searching for a therapist, if some if you're someone who exercise is really important to you, you'll want to suss that out in your therapist. Um, can they understand this? If someone's like, okay, you run ultra marathons, cool, but right now we really need you to not do that. That might not be something that really is like the most effective therapeutic relationship. And I don't know if that would make you feel understood. So I think going in with a perspective of you know, reading bios, looking, if, if you are searching for someone with an eating disorder background, the Academy for Eating Disorders is a great place to start. Um, there's also the female athlete conference every, uh, every other year, and they present on some amazing research. And there's really great clinicians linked up with that as well. And I know that's right now it's female athlete only, but um, hopefully that'll still resonate with 
enough people in, in the list, listener base. Yeah, because the resources are out there, but it's not as common as like a physical therapist, right? I think that's oh, a, no. that, that's a that's a more common thing where people know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody that had their IT band fixed by so and so. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And they and they struggle a lot with trying to find kind of the right resources. So I'm going to link those up in the show notes. And obviously, yes. after the recording, if you want me to to put anything else in there, I'll I'll, I'll link them up as well. Um, so before we let you go, Maddie, what's next for you? I mean, you mentioned that you're going to move out to the West Coast. It's a big, you know, it's the longest journey across the U.S. that you can probably imagine. <laughs> what, what are you what are you looking to do next in your academic and your clinical career? So uh, after clinical internship year, I'm really hoping to have like sort of a research and clinical career. My hope is to develop identity um, identity related treatment modules. So right now in eating disorder treatment, we don't really talk about identity. Um, we don't talk about exercise identity or athletic identity. Some treatments really don't address exercise behaviors at all. So I'm really hoping to get into that space and work towards creating identity focused treatment, um, and working with individuals with, with exercise, um, problematic exercise. I, I have a, I have a feeling that there's going to be a, a, you know, I, I hate to, I hate to say this because I'm like predicting a doomsday event or something like that, but there's going to be, there are people out there be, just because of how society is becoming like more and more attached to the sport groups that they're doing as a, as mm -hmm. more of a research to cling on to something, you know? So yeah. I think that that's something like that is going to end up being, you know, incredibly valuable, an incredibly valuable resource and practitioners in the space are going to be needed. Yes, I would hope so. And I think too, right now we're in this weird space with like all these different online platforms of telling people what we should or shouldn't be doing for exercise. And so much of that can get internalized when it's maybe that's not safe for you or yeah. something. So, you know, I think the exercise space in these next couple of years will be really interesting. Well, there's a lot of like practitioners in the space, like, like, like myself that are starting to realize that we're kind of like woefully adequate in this area. Um, and I would, I would broaden it out to psychology in general, because yeah. we have an incredible sports science, uh, history and background within training coaches and people that kind of interact with athletes coming from that sports science side of things. And because of that, because of that kind of like dominance, we lack a lot in these other sides. And that's why I have to bring people like, you know, like you on the podcast to like, help me figure out and help me at least get to like a kindergarten or a fourth grade level you know, with a lot of this stuff, because the fact of the matter is, is it is, like you said, we're in a mental health crisis mm -hmm. and it's becoming more and more important for not only the athletes out there to become uh, educated on it, but the coaches out there that have to be interdisciplinary yes. to become educated on it as well. Absolutely. And I think, I think especially with disordered eating and these things are scary for people to want to touch, um, you know? And so I think the more that we can kind of educate and understand what this might look like and help people question their own relationship with these things, the better off we will all be. I a hundred percent agree with you. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's always enlightening for, uh, for me, because like I said, it's an area where I'm trying to get to an elementary school level of proficiency and it's a constant, it's a constant, uh, learning exercise. Uh, so I've always been appreciative of, of people like you in the space. Where can people get to know more about you or the depth lab or any of the work that you're, uh, that you're doing? Yes. So, um, the depth lab has a website. Let me see if I can remember the, 
I'll link it up in the show notes. Yeah, you can link it up. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, it's USF Death Lab. And yep. then I'm on um, Twitter as Maddie A. Palermo. Um, and I tweet about a lot of my research that I do. That's actually a big space where I interface with um, a lot of different clinicians, people I've never met, um, different researchers. It's, it's a really great resource just for sharing articles and things of that nature. So feel free to check me out there as well. Twitter's getting a lot of hate in the mental uh, health space right now, but there are I some know. shining lights in it. If you can kind of like stay in your circle. My of feed is so curated, <laughs> you know, like I've got my people and that's what I need. And yeah. It's a very safe space for me. <laughs> keep, keep it on the following tab and don't switch yes. over to the for you that suggested no, never for switch you. Over. There you go. <laughs> Advice from a professional right there on how to navigate Twitter these days. I've always said that my <laughs> mute my mute list and my follow list, yes. if I can like curate those really tightly, I've got a good uh, effective Twitter feed at what I want it to do, which is to serve me the best information possible. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Gotta be careful. <laughs> Maybe we'll have a whole episode on how to curate Twitter. And we can bring in people from all sides of the space. That'll we'll leave that for the future. Anyway, I appreciate it. Links to the notes, links in the show notes will be to everything that we talked about. But once again, thank you for uh, what you do and coming on the podcast today. Of course. Great to speak with you. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Maddie for coming on the podcast today and helping me understand a lot more about a topic that I am continually trying to learn about as a coach. As I mentioned from the onset of this podcast, whenever I discuss eating disorders or disordered eating, I always want to make sure that I'm really bringing in the true experts in the room, the people that are at the coalface of working with athletes and working with people in order to help them overcome this type of disease or these types of behaviors. Maddie is an excellent example of that. And I encourage everybody out there, if you think you are suffering from disordered eating or an eating disorder, or you have a friend, a training partner, or one of your loved ones that you feel needs help, go to one of the links that I'm leaving in the show notes for the Academy for Eating Disorders. There are a number of resources there, as well as an area where you can find a practitioner or clinician in your area if you choose to reach out to them. Appreciate the heck out of all the listeners out there. If you find this podcast valuable, please share it with your friends, your colleagues, and your training partners. That is the way that we get the word about this podcast out. And I appreciate the heck out of each and every one of you. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails. Mm -hmm.